We are in Titus 2 this morning. As you can see behind me, we've titled our series in Titus, Sound Doctrine and Good Works, because the, 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 the book of Titus is from Paul the Apostle to his younger ministry protege, Titus, about his job to go to the island of Crete, where there was a lot of Christians, but they weren't organized yet, and they didn't have elders and organized churches with services and oversight and whatnot. And so Titus was to go in and establish order, put things into right um, uh, into right form, and his first job at that, you'll remember back in chapter 1, 5 through 9, was to establish an eldership in each church. That's, we went through that, and the last week we covered that it was his duty also to confront false teachers, to shut them down, rebuke them sharply, shut them up, because we realize, we know, that ideas have consequences. Theology always has application, even if you don't realize it. The way you think will always influence the way you live. And therefore, to allow people to be among the church who are teaching falsehood, rising up to a teaching position when they are not biblically equipped, that will do damage, not just to the statement of faith on the church website, but to the lives of families who have children that they are trying to raise in the admonition of the Lord who have difficulties and struggles in their own life, they will be adversely affected in every way. This is what Paul told us. So it was Titus's job to pick a fight with those guys, but also to train the elders to be battle-ready against the false teachers. And this week, we really pick up on exactly the same theme, but addressed to a different, uh, a, a different crowd. Where last week he was saying, get rid of the false teachers, their teaching is going to cause harm. He's now going to say to Titus, teach, and obviously train the elders to, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You'll see this in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, you might read that in here. Yes, he's telling him, preach sound theology. That's not what he's telling him. He's telling him, obviously, as he's already said back in the beginning of chapter 1, as he re-emphasized in the uh, uh, appointing of elders. There must be sound doctrine preached, but now he's going on to application. He's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach those things as to how they should be living under the umbrella of sound doctrine. And so he starts getting very, very practical today as he goes in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Now, we are going to sort of cover this in a three-part uh, uh, step, the first 10 verses, um, but we're going to read the first 10 verses every sermon because there's, there's sort of three different people who are addressed here. <clears throat> we have uh, older men and younger men addressed who we will uh, address today in our, in our sermon on manhood. Then next week, we're going to look at younger women and older women. And those gender roles of men and women we will address in the church and in the home and in society, in the workforce. Um, uh, and we will also then, uh, from verse 9, address the issue. And I hope this will be quite, quite relevant as we go through the Bible. It always gives us timely matter to talk about slavery and employment and what the Bible would say about those things. So just in case 
you know, there's anyone out there that won't be addressed or offended. The Bible, I've heard, I read one, one person this week, the Bible believes in equality, so it offends everybody equally. So we're going to talk about men, their failures and their redemption, women, their duties and their redemption, uh, and slaves slash employment and whatnot. We'll talk about that in two weeks to come. So I, I pray this will be a blessing, but we will begin this week uh, talking of manhood. This is a, a, a topic, and especially what, uh, what, uh, how brief Titus is here, it's all very pregnant. This could be a hundred sermons just here. And, and so instead of laboring week after week after week on manhood, this is the precise reason, knowing this was coming up, that, that I started the Biblical Manhood Teaching Series on our app, available uh, to everybody, but aimed at the men, is because there is so much to cover, and there is so little well taught on on this in churches, and there is every, uh, I mean, it's 50% of the population, but sadly, not 50% of churches. Most men don't go to church. Most churches have an overflow of women and children, and that's sort of our culture. Real men sort of view church. It's a children and women's thing I'll go sometimes, not altogether. And so we want to push back against that. So I've created that teaching series. At the moment, I've got 25 sessions lined up. I'm sure more will be added. It'll take me a while. Thank you for being patient. But I pray that they will be a blessings for you. But today, we're in Titus. I want to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll look at the relevant texts for today. So may you look towards God's word revealed to us in your Bible on your lap. It reads like this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants or slaves, they are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is the theme. Adorning the doctrine. To adorn a jewel is to put it in a beautiful setting on top of a crown or in a beautiful band around a ring. To put this doctrine well-positioned and showed and framed well to the world, to the world is our godly life. And so to, to men we speak today, let me read the relevant verses here in verse 2 and verse uh, uh, 6. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. And likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word to us today. <clears throat> in our... Well, today, we're going to be looking at all these gender roles, but, but specifically, we're not just addressing the home gender roles between a marriage uh, today. Particularly, we're looking at the, the role of men as they have been called to lead in society as a whole, in the church as a family, and yes, in the family, um, um, uh, in, in the nuclear family 
especially. We're not so much talking about marriage where they have headship and in the churches where they are elders. We've kind of already done that and we'll be addressing that a lot in the Biblical Manhood series. But what we're specifically looking at is that the call on every man and especially the man of God who has given his life to Christ by faith and received forgiveness of his sins is to be a leader. The greatest, let me, let me say this, the, you've heard me say it before, the greatest plight on our society today is not crime, is not drugs, is not lack of education or lack of funding. All of those things follow the greatest plight, which is fatherlessness. The failure of men to lead their families well, stick out in perseverance with their families and give them a righteous example. It's been said by uh, one Dr. Horn who did, a, who did a study in Australia. He said, there exists today no greater single threat to the long-term well-being of our children, our communities, or our nation than the increasing number of children being raised without a committed, responsible, loving father. <clears throat> one Dr. Werner Horg and also Philippe Warner, they did a study in 1994 in Switzerland, and they showed that, uh, that, that if, there is a, if there is a husband... So in a family where there is a religious family, if that man, if that husband and father is not a dedicated goer of, to church and religious duties, right? this was sort of across all Christianity, Catholicism included, so there'll be some dilution here. But so this shows to us the, the natural order of things where men are called to do. Where there was a committed, godly, loving, praying, church-going mother, but no committed husband, or the husband was there, but not committed, or not attending, the, the, the successful discipleship rate of children who are going to be committed churchgoers in the future was 2%. 2%. If you flip that and say the mother, regardless of her dedication, if you have a dedicated godly man in the home, that rises to over 45%. That's, that's over 25 times. Oh, let me, somebody will pull me up on that one. That's over 20 times at least. And this is in no way to put down motherhood. This is to call men up to the standard that God has set forth. There's, there's more here. I, I could go, for, um, go, go, go on and on about all the statistics we have here. God has made men to lead spiritually, and that cannot be voted out. That is not going to a poll. We either live up to that reality and live out our calling as leaders in the home, the church, and the world, or we fail and lose our children and the next generation of men to the world. There's no option, though. We don't get to vote and say, well, the ladies these days are greater leaders. You know, I, I, I actually don't see things that way. I vote out. There is no voting out. We have one study that went on in the UK and it said this, when children see that church is a women and children thing, they will respond accordingly. By not going to church or going much less, curiously, both adult women as well as men conclude subconsciously that dad's absence from church indicates that going to church is not really a grown-up activity. Mothers' choices have dramatically less effect upon the children than their fathers. And without him, she, the mother, has little effect on the primary lifestyle choices of her offspring that they make in terms of religious observance. 
Study after study. We have another one from the USA. Dr. Uecker and Ellison say, as young adults develop a religious identity apart from their parents, or as their religious identity changes as they grow up, their father's religious characteristics become more important than their mother's, with whom their childhood identity most closely aligns. Mothers rear children most powerfully and have a greater effect on their children than fathers in most decisions and lifestyles. But once they hit that independent teenage decision-making years, the father becomes the model that they follow. Even if they hate their dad, even if they don't like their dad and they know he's a fool, doesn't matter. They follow him because they see that women and children go one way, grown-ups go another. It's the dire, tragic reality. One uh, person writing, this is Dr. Benston after another study, he said, fervent faith cannot compensate for a distant dad. Fervent faith cannot compensate for a distant dad. Because fervent faith makes no sense if there is a distant dad. They go so hand in hand. This is where it, 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 it is incumbent upon us to have an entire Christian worldview, not just of theology, but of things that accord with sound doctrine, which is family life, social life, church life, all of these things. That you might say, this is all family related. You know, I thought we were going to talk about the church. Why is this father and children? Well, in all reality, friends, the church, we are a family. And, and those principles, at least, which can be taken from the nuclear family can be applied, broad spectrum, to the church. The church is to be, and the, the relationships of the church are built on top of family nuclear relationships. It doesn't replace it. It doesn't get rid of that father-child bond, but it comes around to support and on top of to build up. <clears throat> In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul speaks this way. He says to Timothy in, and over a church, he says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That's going to be my job in the, in the next few weeks, is to address the older men here as a young man myself as fathers. As the other young men around me, I want to encourage you and speak to you as brothers. Me and my brother were rough, so get over it in advance. Older women as mothers, who I love and appreciate, and other young ladies as sisters in purity and in affection. <clears throat> this is the reality. What we can save the family, we can often save the church because we are a spiritual family. I want to show you that these studies that I've just quoted, while helpful and while giving us a, a modern-day snapshot, they really are irrelevant for the word of God has already said these things. In Exodus chapter 20, at the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses over the nation of Israel, in Exodus chapter 20, God in his second commandment about idolatry, he says this, you shall make, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven or on earth, or that is in the earth, beneath the earth, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he's saying, where there is idolatry, he will respond in this way. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. There's so many 
strange preachers will take that and sort of talk of these spiritual curses that need to be broken through oil and enchantations and tongue speaking, whatever. Throw it away. The others will take this and say, see, you will be punished for the sins of your father, which is something that Ezekiel actually uh, uh, says precisely does not happen. God already uh, says elsewhere in the prophets that he does not punish one man for another man's sin. What he's speaking of here is that to the third and fourth generations, sin and its deadly consequences takes root and takes hold of people. One man's sin feeds into the next generation who raise up and multiply that sin. So that each generation living in sin multiplies and, and exponentially multiplies the, the sin and the curse that we passed on to the next generation. It is an unending cycle of sin and destruction unless the Lord comes in with the gospel of Jesus that breaks that curse and brings forgiveness. For God says in the very next line, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Until the gospel comes in, generation after generation of families and societies naturally trend downwards into sin because men don't lead, exemplify, and mentor right living. And so it is passed down. So these studies that show us all that fatherlessness is a curse on society is simply saying we agree with God back from Exodus chapter 20. We don't need them to agree to know that he was, he was true. So now that we're back in Titus chapter 2, and I hope you are there, I want to speak now to the reality of men who are in the church. And one of the, the background assumptions here, the background assumption is that men train other men and everybody within their care or within their reach. This is, this is so essential. When you think of godly community, you have to think of a clan, a tribe, a family group, a community getting around each other. And where there is godly manhood, there will always be men in his shadow, men in his wake. He, will all, he is not simply forward-facing and self-seeking, but also backward-looking and checking and raising up and shepherding. That is so, so when it says here, it's going to talk to older men, you need to see in the Pauline Jewish biblical mindset, and let it be the Christian mindset, he is assuming that these men will be passing on these characteristics. For example, I know you're going to stay in Titus 2. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 6. <clears throat> I'm only saying you don't have to go there because I just got you to turn back. Uh, Deuteronomy Chapter 6, God is speaking again to the parents of the Israelite nation. He says this, this is the commandment from verse 1. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded, this is Moses speaking, commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you're going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping his statutes and commandments which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. So here's the assumption. I'm giving you the commandments for the sake of your grandchildren. It must be passed on, exemplified, and mentored. Or a little bit further down, this might be very familiar to you, this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And the words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. 
What is the next assumption from the word of God out of his mouth when he's saying, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The very next words, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This is the nature of loving something with all your heart, soul, and strength. You will speak of it. You will overflow with it. You will exemplify it. You will imprint that passion and love of the Lord your God and his commandments and his statutes into your closest followers. This is precisely why the eldership um, qualification that we looked at two weeks ago includes a man whose children are submissive as long as they are in his house. Because if he does not have a lifestyle that is able to imprint onto the next generation, he'll have no good luck, skill, experience, or qualification to do that in God's house. It's always multi-generational. He goes on down in verse 20, and he says, when your son asks you in the time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Right? Why are we butchering so many lambs? Why are we wearing these clothes? Why does that guy wear a dress thing, all white with gold laden over it, dad? The answer is not, shut up, it's what we do, it's religion, just do it. Mum dragged us along, it's what we should do. It's just good for society to be religious. The answer is, my son, you've asked a question. If I don't know, I'll learn, but my passion is to sit you down, teach to you, and explain to you. He says, when they ask you, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandments. Do you see? The father is meant to say, you have a question. You wonder why we're doing what we're doing. We are doing this because of redemption. Look what God has done. Because he has commanded this to us, and therefore we do it. And you must go on doing it, for it will be righteousness for you. This is what men are always called to do throughout Scripture. It is the assumption so that when we come to Titus 2, it is not simply telling old men how to behave but telling old men how to behave as leaders who pass on their legacy. I want you to see that. So there's no question whether you'll be a father in the church. You are a father. The question is, what type of father will you be? What type of life will you exemplify? Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Let it be known today. If you are not building, you are tearing down by the very example of not building. And so, Titus 2 meets us this morning. What type of men should older men be to exemplify manhood? Or we can ask first, this is always on people's mind, what's an older man? I mean, what's an older And you'll be happy to know, some of you, that an old man in biblical times was somebody who was um, no longer able to or of child-producing years. So in, in Greco-Roman uh, culture, this was if you were above 60, by even a day, if you are above 60, you're an older man. Uh, some of you might breathe a sigh of relief. You're, you're, you're cruising through the 50s. Young man, here you are. You're, you're still in the young adults ministry. <clears throat> uh, older men are those who are old. And, and I want to say, as we come to this, we honor you, old men. The older men among us, 
grayed hair where there is hair. Uh, uh, but, but here among us, singing loudly, we honor you. We are in a culture that despises old people and old men. You would know, turn on any TV show, the dumbest, most idiotic, stupid comedy relief character is always going to be the grandfather or the, or the husband. Always. We, we, they, they don't honor men, but they, and our culture doesn't honor old men. Uh, some churches, many churches don't honor old people. Do you know how many meetings I've been in where people, in an attempt to make church relevant, have suggested we kind of quarantine the oldies to an earlier service or invite them to attend another church because we want to be relevant? Fools those pastors are. Complete and utter idiots. The wisest among us we want to, and are those who have had the most experience. We honor you if you're an older man. We'll talk about older women next week. But we honor you. I want to thank God for you. We are honored that you are here among us. And young people, challenge. Always challenge your view of old people and old men. Your response when they open their mouth is to roll your eyes, wonder, why don't we get the young guys in here? Or, or if, you're, if your mindset of older men is anything but honor, you are worldly. You are worldly and you have much to learn. Shut your mouth. Listen to what the old men among us will say. None of them are infallible. All of them are older and wiser than you. Even Timothy was not allowed to rebuke him like he spoke to young men. So we honor those veterans. I don't know if you've ever, this might not be a very pastoral thing to say. I don't know if you ever watched like The Contender or the boxing shows that used to be on, on, um, on Fox 8 back when I was in high school. And you'd have all these guys who were training up for the, for the, for the, uh, for the boxing fights at the end of the, end of the um, uh, season. And it's this heavy, it's this awesome, it's this bloody training. And they are, they are going hard. But they, and they've all got these dreams of being great. And then there's one scene close to the end of the season where Sylvester Stallone walks in to the, and they turn into little girls. Their voices go up. They start pulling whatever they can to get an autograph. They're so excited and very intimidated that this man, now he's old. He, you thought he couldn't pronounce words properly in Rocky. He was old by the time he was doing this one, but still respected. Here's this guy who's gone before us, lost loads of fights, one more, and he's standing before us here to equip us. That's, that's what we should view. That's how we should view people uh, who are older than us in our church. And I'm still not getting into the wording of Titus 2. So let's go. Titus 2, right here. Titus says that old men, and this is brief, they're to be sober-minded, dignified, meaning, meaning serious and, and able to be solemn and, and not silly, not light, not irreverent, self-controlled. That word is going to come up over and over again as a theme in Titus 2. Self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. We can break this into two. We've got sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. This is their behavior. They're self-controlled men who, who have fought many battles against the flesh. They have, you guys have, have lost many battles, but you know greater than anybody else the high cost of sin, the great deceitfulness of sin. You know that when you, when you pursued ungodly women or pursued ungodly uh, 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 financial decisions or when you, when you were foolish in, in other uh, behaviors in your marriage or in your family or in your workplace, that never reaped the harvest that godliness would have. You know that. That is why you're also dignified. You're able to be serious. You know that the, the clock is ticking. Life is brief. The hair is graying faster than what you 
thought it would as a young man, and now you have the ability to know some things are not joke-worthy. Some things need seriousness, need solemnness. And so you're able to bring men, young men, to account on that. You're able to remind to them what is worth spending their time on in life. The ladies that are worth pursuing and that are not worth pursuing. The, the pursuits in life that are and are not wise to do. You have that experience. All of those wounds, all of those difficult failures that are in your past, let God use them as lessons to the younger generation. And you are sober-minded. You are not one who passes your time away in drinking or in indulgence of any other kind. You know what you are here to do. You've experienced failure in all of these areas, and you will, in your last legs, in your last few decades of life, you are not retired. I don't care if you stopped working nine to five. You are not retired. While there is breath in your lungs, fathers, older men, you are called to rise up, to speak out of that wealth of knowledge and wisdom that you have to the younger generations. And may you do that. You are not the old, slow backsitters. Get out of the way for the young people. You are the sages. You are the, the elders, as would be called in the old Jewish community. You have respect. You have our honor. We want to hear you, your input, and your involvement in our young men's lives. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Furthermore, he's to be somebody who is, <clears throat> who is leaving an inheritance. Now, Proverbs 13, 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. This is speaking not only of, as Proverbs will tell us, not only of financial wealth. You can leave an enormous load of wealth to a young man, and if you have not deposited into him wisdom, he will blow it all in a day. However, what we need to see is that spiritually, old men are here. You have, you have this enormous uh, wealth, as we said before, of wisdom and experiences behind you. Now, you are to like a man who has a great inheritance. You're not to be like a man who has all this gold, life savings, stored up in a safe, hidden somewhere. Only you have the key. Only you have the map. And then you fall overboard and drown in the ocean with that map in your pocket wasting that, that wealth that could have been passed on. You ought to be men who are open-vaulted, who are, you've opened your lives, opened your mouths, opened your, uh, your time for younger men that you might deposit this into them for the sake of producing spiritual children and grandchildren who have lessons that they don't need to learn the hard way because you will speak it into them. <clears throat> so a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, may that be said of you. Now, now to the young men. Oh, sorry, sorry, I've skipped a couple of words there, didn't I? Sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. This is, this is again, that comes up all over again in Paul, the triad of faith, hope, and love. Now, you don't see love, uh, hope there, but, but it's there in, in the sense of steadfastness. This, this willingness and ability to be faithful to the end, because, as he'll say over in chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2, we have a hope coming, we know what is promised to us, therefore we are able to be steadfast. These foolish men in our society who are running from wife to younger wife to younger wife, from job to job to, to gambling to all of these foolish pursuits, trying to gain what we know we do not need to chase. We have lived long enough older men, to know that all riches are at the Father's right hand in Jesus Christ. He leads me by his right hand. When I was 
foolish, I was ignorant, I was brutish towards you, Lord, but now I know that in you are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, paraphrased. That's you. You know that. You're not pursuing what these foolish men are pursuing. You are sound in the faith. You know the truth. In love, you're able to, uh, to pour out that truth that you know, as Jesus Christ did, into foolish twelve, uh, sorry, foolish young men, those, those 12 disciples he carried around with us. He loved them well, was patient with them, gave an example always. And now we can move on to, to young men before we come back to the both of them. And young men, again, under 60. Good on you. Anyone under there? You're a young man in the Bible's books. To you young men, there is only... There is only a, uh, a single verse here in, chat, in verse 6. Urge the younger men. Urge them. This is, this is strong. This is continual. This is exhortation. This is encouragement. This is get behind them and shove them forwards if they won't move. This is grab them and throw them against the lockers if they won't listen. Love them. Urge them with urgency. Urge them to be self-control. Self-control. Young men are like wild stallions. There's a hundred sermons that can go into what it means to be self-controlled, but they are, young men are like these wild stallions out on the fields. They run fast. They make mess. They tread people down. They are, they are beasts. They are war beasts, as the, the Bible will tell us. However, have you ever seen them in battle? If they can be taken, these, these fast, strong, muscular, passionate, energetic perseverant horses, you take them, you break out the wild from them, civilize them and train them. They are an unstoppable force until we produce the tank. But, 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 that, but other than that, the, the, these battle-ready beasts, that is young men. Yes, they cause havoc. Yes, they can be messy in society. And when they are not self-controlled, there is all a load of mess, generation to generation. However, if they are trained, controlled, and equipped, a young man is a weapon on the kingdom of darkness. And, and when it says self-control here, don't just hear negative. Right? You feel something rise up, be self-controlled. When you feel something come forward, be self It's not just hold back your sinful urges. It's self-control that strives forward. It's the self-control to be disciplined, to get up out of bed to go forward into that degree, into something you need to achieve, to, to do well. This is a positive call as well. Self-control means you hold yourself back when there is sin uh, reaching forwards, and you bring yourself forward when there is laziness and idleness and passivity. Young men are to be self-controlled. Where, where there is urges within you, many of them need to be slaughtered on the spot. But many of them also can be steered towards godliness. Young men, listen to these. If you have ambition within you, don't hear, stop trying to be ambitious, settle down, do nothing in life, don't be worldly. Rather, take that ambition and steer it towards godliness to achieve great things for the Lord. The world is ready for the taking. Or in Jesus' words, the harvest is white. Go and get it. Be ambitious. It's interesting to me that when, when, the, when, the, when the, the disciples said to Jesus, like, how do we, can, can I sit on, on, the, on the throne next to you? How do we be the greatest? We want to be the greatest. Jesus did not tell them, you fools, you ambitious men, don't be so uh, reaching for greatness. He didn't tell them that. He told them greatness, which is good, you're reaching for in the wrong places. 
Don't strive for the throne. Be the greatest by being the servant of all. Jesus encourages ambition. It's a good thing. Where there is sexual drive, urge that, uh, control that, bring that in, and turn it into a passion for a pure and long-lasting marriage with the woman of your dreams. Where sexual passion strives up and is not controlled, it will be a wildfire destroying women who are daughters of God, who are sisters of you. It will destroy families. It will destroy your future. But don't also just try and hold that thing down and bury it under the floorboards. It will explode. Rather, seek that sexual reality urges temptation, not temptations to bad things, but sexual drive is a good and godly thing. It's perfectly good. But it can be taken and used in terrible ways. So urge it towards what will be a future glorious, beautiful marriage with a wife that will be with you for life. Think towards your grandchildren. Think every time sexual urge comes up, young men, think to yourself as a great great grandfather, surrounded as you're, you're decrepit, you're old, you can't walk for yourself, but you're surrounded by 20, 30 little babies other, who, who are babies to your grandchildren. They're all singing around you hymns. They're quoting scripture. Some of them have gone off as missionaries, some as pastors, some as uh, faithful men who work in the workforce and convert their friends. View that and let it all go up in flames if you indulge in sexual immorality. Train yourself for that. That is a legacy. <clears throat> Where there is rage within you, fight. Fight for the widow. Fight for the unborn that are slaughtered daily in Queensland. Fight for in, uh, against injustice in our society. Where there is curiosity, don't be told to shut up, stop asking questions and sit down, but study open books, old books by dead men. They wrote well. Read them long and hard. Listen to lectures. Download and indulge in sermons. Where you have this desire for, for power, steer that to godliness. Watch for worldliness, but do not suppress it. Instead, work harder and more faithfully than every single other man around you in every capacity you serve in. If you do that, you will rise in the right way to a servant-hearted leader in the workforce, in the church, in your family, in society, wherever you are. You desire power, Jesus is good. It was meant for you. But you need hands that are ready for it. Be faithful in the little. Strive for greatness in the little. God will give you more. Young men, strive for that godly kind of power. Do you have, do you have this desire to just get up and conquer something? Can I say one application here would not be to download the latest video game and conquer some wizard with a flaming sword that you got off some merchant. Conquer something real, not pixels. If you have just completed seven rounds of a greatest video game that is out there, you accomplished nothing. How many guys have tried to tell me, yeah, I just did so much this weekend, battled the elf dwarf king. And No, 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 you did nothing. That's what you did. Because when I switch off on that machine, it's all gone. Don't labor for that which is not bread. Labor for that which has eternal consequences. Get up. The mission was made for you. You were made for the mission. There are souls who are burning and you're being distracted by pixels and other such ridiculous things. The mission is for Jesus Christ. Self-control. 
Young man, in you is an energetic. I don't need to tell you this, but let's remind everybody. In us is an energetic, strong man who loves sin. Against you is a strong, cunning devil who knows how to tempt you. Who has a, who has a logbook of every past victory he got against you and of every successful temptation against you and will utilize it in war against you for his tactics. He knows also how to accuse you daily of every past sin and failure. But this grandfather of apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you young men because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let those words resound in your head. You are strong. You have the word of God. You overcame the devil. Walk in that in the power of Jesus Christ. Do not call yourself a loser, a failure. You're not weak. You're not helpless. You're a sinner redeemed by Jesus Christ for good works. Men alike, I tried to to come up with a few analogies here because young guys need pictures. This is a pop-up picture book sermon. Uh, men, young men, are like cattle trucks. You ever parked next to one of those at the, in the suburbs? Got a whiff? Young men are like cattle trucks. If you take all of the cattle out of it, it might go faster, but it shakes, doesn't it? Hits the highway at 100, it starts the, the trailer can veer. You throw 10 truck of cattle onto that, and with a load, it drives straighter, more control. Young men are like that. Where they sit idle and don't move, build up a mighty stench to society, to their families, to their mothers, to their fathers, to the Lord. A lot to clean up, and they don't. You take the load off of them, they don't drive straight, they crash, they're a danger to others. You put a load on them, and you set them going, they drive straight, they produce good works, and at the end, people get fed beautiful T-bone steaks. Young men need a load. Lamentations through for a walk with you about one minute this way and show you McDonald's. They've got shift managers, they've got, they've got staff managers working over 20 other young people who are 15, 16. They know the secret to, to taking hard workers and turning, all they offer them is money and young men are able to get up in the morning and do good things. You know what else I could do? I could go for it with you for a drive down to the nearest army base. I can show you men as young as 18, 19, 20, leading dozens of others with deadly firearms in their hands. No one has a problem with that. What they need is training. They will be trained one way or the other. We may as well catch them young, give them loads, give them work, and set them straight. Don't be afraid of young men. Be afraid of uncontrolled men. This is the problem. Uncontrolled are a danger to the point of death for women and children. But controlled young men are are battle-ready soldiers in the cause of Christ. Let me speak, though, here. As, as we were saying before, now let me come back to old men and young men as we kind of wrap up. Young men in this church, older men, I'm, I'm talking to you, the, the younger men need fathers. We actually have this, especially if you will uh, be one who maybe at real practical point of application, if you will double church attendance and come in the evenings, you will know that many of our young men, they struggle to get up before 5 p.m. That's why they come to the evening service. We're working on that. But many of them don't have dads that are either present 
and let alone Christian. And so what is incumbent on, on the older man in this church, and maybe not necessarily over 60, but all of us who are older than any others, is to say, what I have is a life, what I have is an ability to teach, what I have is a knowledge of the Word of God, however shoddy, is better than men who have not learned anything in their youth and have been recently saved. You can come alongside of them and be fathers to them who so desperately need it. We should never look at young guys who don't have dads, haven't been trained how to live as Christians, how to dress as Christians, how to speak as Christians. We don't look at them and get frustrated and see them as an inconvenience and see them as a burden on the church. We're all the holy young men. The holy young men are those young men after a couple of years of good discipleship. Those men need spiritual fathers because their own fathers have failed them. That's incumbent on us. If you're here... Any of us have younger men around us. It's up to us to get alongside them and bring them with us. You know, it's not about, you know, application from Titus 2, start a men's ministry. No, men minister. Men minister to younger men. Not start a ministry so, so that the pastor can preach young men specific sermons. It's, that's not enough. We don't need another program. We don't need a, another Sunday school. We don't need another planned program. We need men who will minister to other men. That is the cry of the need of the hour. <clears throat> the state of young men in one generation. Psalm 145 verse 4 tells us, and this is again God's pattern for godly passing on. One generation shall commend your work to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's the duty of every generation. Pass it on. Which means that it makes no sense to look at the young men of another generation or the upcoming generation and say that they themselves are the problem because they are a product, while they are responsible for their own acts, they are a product of the prior generation. This is society-wide. This is church-wide. The coming-up generation is a product of the former men. So it would make no sense if you were, you know, some of you older guys, you lived in this age, you, your dad worked on his own car, you never paid a mechanic to come and do it, you fixed your own walls and the uh, holes in the wall, you did your own work, and he trained you. He showed you how to change a, a brake pad and, you know, something about a piston inside a thing, right? You know that, right? That was you. You've, you've been trained how to do it. And then you become this father and, and, and you don't train your kid. You know how to do it, but you don't train your son. And then, you know, you sort of go and look at his breaking down car and go, oh, they just don't make them like they used to, do they? You know, it's, it's a generational problem. Your times are going down. No, the problem is that he wasn't taught. The problem was that you didn't pass on what you had. And so society, one generation to another, can never look back on the good old days. You never say they never make them like they used to. They need to take responsibility and say, though I may not be on the, the worst end of the spectrum of men, I can still do more. I can work to redeem in this eternal landscape, in this eternal garden of productivity. I can sow and I will reap effects into the future. So fathers to sons. Let me speak to the fathers here who have sons who are still in your house. The Sunday school is not a replacement for you. We praise God for it. We utilize it. We teach children in a way that they understand and they receive rich doctrine up there. But it does not replace men. It does not replace women. Youth group is good, evangelistic, social, community. It is not a replacement of fathers. 
Young men's ministry is not a replacement of fathers. Giving them a study Bible is good, not a replacement of you sitting down with them and just talking about the grace of the Lord Jesus in your life. No, let me say that again. Nothing replaces fathers. Fervent faith is no replacement for dads who are in life with their children. And young men, let me speak to, to the young men here. You need to change how you think of older men. You need to not think that you've basically got it all sorted out because you've got four sermon apps on your phone. But rather, get alongside older men. Go, don't think that they're outdated and irrelevant. Go alongside them and learn the wisdom of the sages. Learn the experience of the ages. And uh, maybe we would hear that where there is fatherlessness, a father who has deserted family, a father who has moved on and neglected his family, is there then hopelessness? Is there then no chance of help? The answer, of course, is no. The exception is grace, and the church abounds in it. God abounds in grace to give to young men who are lacking. And without dads, we have here spiritual fathers who can come alongside them. Let me, let me show you in Titus chapter 1, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. The sin of man flourished. It was passed on generation to generation. Men, your own sins in the past, your own terrible examples put before you, your rebellion mounted up for you, condemnation justly received at the bar of God's law. You were to be condemned. You, you received a bad inheritance, made it worse, and are passing it on worse than it came to you. You are a sinner, a man made in the image of God who ruined that image in sin. But the grace of God has appeared, friends. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, adulterers, thieves, fools, any man who has wasted many years to you, salvation is offered. You have either stepped into it by faith in Jesus Christ, or you are yet to, but still the offer is for all men. Men who have gone to church for decades or who are here for the first time. Salvation is on offer for all people. And it does so much more than simply forgive. It brings salvation and verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is glorious salvation on offer to all men. Now, I'm going to do something we don't do here probably ever. I never get people to stand up, come forward, raise a hand to receive some kind of commitment or salvation or anything. However, what we see scripturally is that there is a, a standing up to receive commission. When, when Moses passed on the baton to Joshua, he had him stand before the people of Israel. He spoke to them and he spoke to him. We see in the kingdoms being passed on from David to Solomon, he would stand up, have his sons stand up and receive a charge. In the New Testament, we see elders stand up before the people. The elders would put their hands on these young men, pray over them, and charge them with the care of the flock. And so at this moment, I want to ask every man in the room, whether you identify as a Christian or not, would you please stand up where you are? I want you to receive a charge from God's word to you. I know, really weird. We're not going to lift up any hands, say any chance. I'm reading to you the Bible. May you respond in this way. Young men, old men, be upstanding. <clears throat> In Deuteronomy 31, we see uh, we see Moses handing the baton to <clears throat> Joshua. And he says this. 
Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, your enemies. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has shown you, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed, young men, old men. Also, we can see in 1 Kings chapter 2, where David, passing, passing away, it says, David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, here the passing on of a calling and commission to men. Of course, in the area of kingship. I am about to go the way of all my fathers. You, be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimony, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention in their way to walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Let me read also what Paul would say at the closing, towards the closing of his letter to the, the, the Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let me pray over you as you stay standing. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in a world of so many voices, of so many commandments, of so many patterns, and so many terrible examples handed over from the previous generations, we thank you, God, that you speak to us your word to call us to account, to rise us, not to beat us down, but to build us up in godliness. We thank you, Lord, that no man here, however many failures in the past or lack of examples that he has, he has your word, he is strong, he has overcome the evil one, he has Jesus Christ. May you bring to our people in this church, may you bring to those who are not even here this morning, May you bring to all those who will come in in future dates, would you give to them a passion for the gospel, a, a, a real biblical manliness. May the women and children flourish in this church because of the hard-working, godly men that are here that you raise up and redeem. Father God, may you, uh, may you extend your kingdom, make your gospel to go far and wide through the mouths of these men, young and old, and may you bless us till our, till our dying breath as we go the way of all of our fathers. And everybody said... Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.